Let's get started with, uh, with a word of prayer. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for this uh, beautiful morning. Uh, we thank you for the reminder that uh, although we anticipate spring and uh, we look forward to a new life, we, uh, we're not there yet. Uh, we, uh, and in one sense, uh, this, is, this is in fact uh, our state uh, spiritually right now. We, we anticipate uh, new life with you and the new heavens and new earth and with our resurrected bodies and yet um, and we have the down payment of the Holy Spirit and, and fellowship with you and your saints and yet uh, we're not there yet. So as we anticipate uh, glory, pray that we would uh, understand our present moment and as we look back on where we came from in the garden, I uh, pray that this would orient us uh, in this place in history, that we would go forward uh, knowing who you are, knowing who we are, knowing what our calling is, and knowing what you will yet do in us by your, by your Holy Spirit and through the power of your Son. So be with us and instruct us from your word this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to continue discussing our topic of dominion and faith. Um, and before I do that, I just want to kind of, you know, we spent a lot of time last week talking about uh, our story, who are we, what are we, and what we are and who we are is more than just what we're made of. We need to think about what we're for. As we come to the topic of dominion, uh, just thinking about where we're at as a church and as a people, you know, we've had several deaths, uh, we've, we've been grieving, and uh, talking about the glory of man might seem a little... Uh, nostalgic is probably the best word we could describe, you know, what, what, uh, how does this fit with our present life? But I think, I think when we bring our grief and we bring sadness and confusion or pain uh, to the topic of dominion, I think that's a very appropriate thing to do because to understand why we grieve, it's helpful to know, uh, why this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's often, uh, that is actually why we do grieve, because humans were not made to die. Humans were not created uh, for that result. And so when we experience that, it's jarring. It's painful. It's, it's ugly. It's not, uh, something's not right. And so as you think about, and as we contemplate uh, life in the garden and how God created us in our original state, uh, bring your pain and bring your sorrow and bring all these things, and you'll better understand the glory of what we're going to experience, and also better understand, I think, your own grief and sense of what precisely we're missing, what precisely is not right. And uh, to kind of set the tone for that a little bit, I uh, there's an artist, a uh, 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 musical artist, uh, Tanielle Nita. Have any of you ever heard of her? might be pronouncing her name incorrectly. But she's, uh, she, she's got these great songs. Uh, one of them's a song about essentially the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and a couple of her songs are very, very uh, theologically informed. But she has a song called Dreaming of Eden. And I'm going to read the lyrics to you. And... I think how she characterizes Eden 
gets at the, I think, emotional, uh, captures the emotional tone of what I think we should take from our study today. So just listen with me, and after the class, if you, I encourage you to look it up on YouTube and, and listen to it. I've been dreaming of Eden. I've been longing for freedom, looking forward to that day when the world won't groan or see decay. Come, most precious Savior, come, most holy one. Come, beautiful Savior, come, all perfect love. I've been dreaming of Eden. I've been longing for your light, looking forward to that day when there will be no more darkness and no more night. Come, most precious Savior, come, most worthy one. Come, beautiful Savior, come, all perfect love. You are making all things, all things new. I see a new city, Eden restored. I see living waters and fullness of joy. I see your glory, your kingdom come. I see the Lamb and the glory of God. I see a new city, Eden restored. I see life eternal and fullness of joy. I see your glory, your kingdom come. Heaven on earth and the King is the Son. O come, most precious Savior, come, most worthy one. Come, beautiful Savior, come, all perfect love. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You are making all things, all things new. So, again, I encourage you to look that up and listen to it. It's it's a beautiful song. So, with that said, let's jump into uh, a little bit of review of what we did last week. Um, I gave you a lot of illustrations and some of you weren't here for those. So uh, I'll mention a few of the illustrations, and you tell me if you remember them, and then tell me what the point was of the illustration. So I sang, I sang a scale, but I left out the last note. What was the point of that illustration? Anybody remembers? Or I'll just do it again for you right now, and tell me how you feel when I sing this, all right? <clears throat> Dun, da, 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 dun. So what was the point of that? Yeah, Rachel. Oh. Right, right. So I sang, I sang a scale. I left out the last note. I started the scale at the tonic, which is the, the tonal center of the key I was in. And I, we got all the way through the scale, and I didn't get to this last note, the tonic again. And so, right, we were... We're made to anticipate completion, and we know what that feels like, at least in the musical realm, and the musical realm is a, it's a language, and it, humans have been making music since the beginning, and, and uh, like all things in this world, uh, everything fits together, and we shouldn't be surprised that even in music, we can see represented uh, the fact that it's not enough just to have all the pieces leading up to the end, you need the end, you need the goal. Okay. Next illustration, uh, Crying Hobbits. Do you guys remember that one? Yeah, Jacob, what? <laughs> what? What was the point of Crying Hobbits? What was I re- referring to? I mean, you watched the scene that the Crying Hobbits in the beginning. Lord of the Rings, right, yeah. Rings, right. Yeah, and it's like, well, it's a weird-looking scene that you haven't seen all of the movies, really, up to that point. It's very odd. Right. But Right, right. So we get the conclusion of a great movie, in this case, Return of the King, when Frodo's getting back on the ship in Grey Havens to go 
to his place of, of rest, and then all the hobbits are crying because they didn't know he was going to leave at that time. And, and if you, you just start watching the movie right there, at the end of the movie, you'd have no idea what's going on. And so it's kind of the opposite problem of, of the musical scale we talked about. Uh, we know the ending, but if we don't have everything leading up to the ending, uh, the ending doesn't quite land the way it's, it's supposed to land. So those two ideas uh, tell us, we need to tell us, we need to understand the end, and then we don't need to just know the end, we also need to know the drama that leads to the end. And this is part of the narrative way that God has made humans think and perceive the world. We understand the world through stories. And when you try to communicate something, try to communicate something to someone without a story, um, and it's going to be boring, it's not going to be as impactful, you're not going to remember it, because narrative structure is how, how God designed us to think. And so as we, as we transition to our topic today with those uh, illustrations in mind, <clears throat> you know, some of the questions we might ask more on the biblical subjects we're going to talk about uh, to illustrate these ideas and to tease these things out might be, what are the Ten Commandments? You started last class, asked you, what is a star? And some said, you know, gas uh, makes light. Um, you know, ball of gas is what it's made of, but what it is is much bigger than just what it's made of. What are the Ten Commandments? We could do the same, same thing. What are they? And some of you might say, okay, you know, a list of rules, um, uh, you know, the, the intro to God's covenant with Israel, uh, kind of a summary of, of his relationship with them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is what God's done for us. Here's our response. Um, but again, the Ten Commandments come to us in the second book of the Bible. There's a whole lot more written after that. Right? It's, it's a piece of a much larger picture. And then we get to the uh, book of Romans. And what, is, what does uh, Paul say? Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean? How, how is that connected to the Ten Commandments? So these questions weren't just helpful illustrations. You could apply them to any piece of the Bible and say, what is this? And to really know what it is, in this case, Ten Commandments, we need to know where the whole Bible's going. So tell us, need to tell us. But also the drama. What's the conclusion of the Gospels? How do they all end? Live question. Yeah, that wasn't rhetorical. Yeah. Well, how do the Gospels end? Dean, you were starting to answer. Resurrection. And ascension. Right. Why is the bodily resurrection of a crucified man who then ascends to heaven the conclusion of the Gospels? Why is that the conclusion? Right. Of all the other ways a good story could end, why is that the conclusion? And why is that the fundamental message of, of the apostles? Why, why is that, when Paul wants to summarize saving faith in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved? Why is that the summary of, of the gospel message? Well, I'm glad you're, you asked, because that's what we're going <laughs> to talk about. So, so there's, there's, a, there's a narrative to the Bible here. There's, there's, we're going somewhere. And uh, Reformed theologians have generally summarized the narrative of all of, all of Scripture in, with three words. Uh, and we're going to use 
this narrative structure to really orient uh, how we're going to build the content of the rest of the class. And that's, some of you guys probably know this. It starts with, the first word starts with a C, second word starts with an F, and then, yeah, so what are you going to say? Say it, go, go, yeah, what is it? Creation, fall, redemption. Creation, fall, redemption, that's right, that's right. Creation, I didn't leave myself enough room. Oh. Here, well, no, we'll do this like this, here we go, fall. Oh, add some spatial dimension to this, yeah. Creation, fall, redemption. Um, you can also, footnote, uh, there's an orange book out on a shelf called The J-Curve. Has anyone read that? By Paul Miller? Okay, well, if you look at, it's like a J, you know? It's a, so, this is related to that book. Just, you should pick it up and read it. Okay, so, um, and this is also the narrative uh, structure of really every story. Every story... Some, maybe you guys can prove me wrong, but every, well, every good story, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's a better way to say it, uh, it follows this pattern, essentially. Uh, any other story that doesn't follow this pattern is just propaganda. That's, uh, you, prove me wrong, but, I, but that's, that's my working hypothesis here. Um, so let's, let's, let's illustrate this here. Um, and, and another way to put this in terms of how we might recognize it in other stories is, is you know, status quo, problem, resolution. That, that's, how, that's how we organize our thoughts. I mean, something as simple as brushing your teeth. I've not brushed my teeth today. That's the status quo. Uh, I have bad breath as a result, and I'll get cavities if I don't do this. That's your problem. How do you resolve it? You brush your teeth. Moving on. I mean, that's, uh, you, can, you can think of everything that way. Uh, also, all the great movies, all the great songs, Let's just think songs, for example. How, do mo how are most songs, at least that we hear on the radio today, and, and this goes back even to you know, the rise of classical form in general. You have an opening theme, and then you, the artist kind of plays with the theme, and there's, there's variations on that theme, and then there's development of that theme, and then there's a, a resolution. Um, you have the theme kind of emerge, but in a, in a different way. Uh, it's the same, same idea. Uh, Hyper-simplified version is what we have today on the radio, which is verse, chorus, verse, bridge. Ooh, something different. You know, really powerful chorus. The same thing, yeah. Right. Yes. Well, and that's why I kind of made this little arrow at the top, because... There is this sense where all resolutions just become new problems to then become restarting. But there is a final resolution where we're going to kind of break past, break through a glass ceiling of sorts, and it's just going to be progress forever. So uh, that's my take on the fade and why it's an appropriate ending, because you can see it as, as kind of anticipating this final, just kind of fade into foreverness, uh, or you can see it as, okay, now it's time to restart a new song, in one sense. Or the song that never ends. Or the song that never ends, <laughs> yeah, it just goes on and on, that's right. Oh, yeah, let's not go there. Um, 
movies. So um, Beauty and the Beast is a great example. You have uh, every Disney movie has the, uh, usually there's kind of like some backstory where, where you see what's going on kind of away from the main characters, something that happened in the past. Like uh, Beauty and the Beast is an example. The very first part of the movie, you have this prince in a castle, and this old lady comes, and she asks for help. He's very stingy and says no, and she curses him with turning into a beast and leaves him this rose, and you've got to find someone that loves you before this rose dies. You're going to be eternally a beast. Okay, that's the backstory. But then you have kind of the status quo, and there's always a status quo song in every Disney movie. And in, in Beauty and the Beast, it's, it's Belle walking through the village. You know, there goes the baker with his tray like always. Why is she singing about bakers? Why is she walking through the street? Because that's just an ordinary French town. Status quo. It's, it's, it's giving you a baseline for the rest of the movie, which is this ordinary, plain person who likes books in a town that doesn't like books is going to be transported into a real-life fairy tale. And the problem she has is she gets cast into a dungeon with a huge beast. And how is this going to resolve? And the resolution is, is she conquers the beast. I mean, that, that's, and, and through her, her spiritual conquest of this beast, she's this more powerful spirit that is able to tame what's physically a more imposing animal. She, she tames him, and the result of it is literally resurrection. I mean, you can't, there's not, Beauty and the Beast was the product of a Christian imagination. When Christians dream dreams, they come up with stories like Beauty and the Beast because it has this, this theme of this, there's a status quo, there's this problem, and then a resolution that almost always looks like uh, resurrection. Sleeping Beauty is the same, same idea, but different take on what conquest looks like. You have a king in a castle having a child, celebration, just a normal thing. You know, babies are born. What could be more normal than the king producing uh, an heir and everyone's happy in the kingdom? Well, then who shows up? This maleficent, this evil person. There's a problem and there's a curse. And, and uh, the whole movie's working out the implications of this curse. And the result is a sleeping beauty you know, a metaphor for death, and the solution is the knight's got to conquer the dragon and raise up the sleeping beauty. It's a, it's a resurrection of sorts. So um, just think, whenever you, whenever you uh, watch a movie, whenever you listen to a song, or whenever you tell a story, uh, have this in mind. And I, I, I think all of our stories are really just imitations of God's story. Um, and, and that's why they stick. And that's why they're, they're good stories. Last point on stories. Um, and why I think movies today, uh, they're, they're successful. Well, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But my, my general take on blockbuster movies is that nobody's really telling new stories right now. They're just replaying old stories. Because our culture is incapable at this point of really producing great art because we're on decline. Um, and, but which stories are the ones that are most impactful? Well, they're, they're the superhero stories that really follow this pattern. Um, and when they try to mess with that, 
either in the interest of wokeness or some political agenda or, or something, they don't make money. They just don't. Um, when you mess with Star Wars, <laughs> you know, and you, and you politicize Star Wars, you don't, you don't make, it, it's a flop, and people, people uh, you know, they ruin the franchise. You know, it was just really, it was so sad. Um, I, I, uh, and we can laugh about it, but like, why is this happening? It's, it's because... This story's baked into our, into our being. And, and people know when you're messing with it. They may not be Christians, but they're made in the image of God. And they, they know that you can't escape this. And so, again, just pay attention to the stories you, you, you read and, and the music you hear and, and have this in mind. So all that to say, creation, fall, redemption um, is, is where we're going. Before we get into... Um, we're going to spend time in Genesis 1, 2, 1, 24 through 2.25 today. Before we get there, I do want to say creation, fall, redemption. Sometimes I think we can take these um, concepts and they become static. But as you think about our narrative plot, um, see these as events. There was a creation event. There was a fall event. There was a, a fundamental redemptive event. But these are also dynamic processes. Okay, when God made the world, it was, it was intended to be an event that then continued on. Um, the implications of this event would, would continue on. Same with the fall. When mankind fell, it was an event. But the effects of that event, we're still living in them, and we're still experiencing them. And same thing with redemption. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection was an event in history. And yet, the effects of it are ongoing. So, so as you think about, you know, when we touch upon the creation, we talk about the fall, we talk about redemption, it's not just static categories. These are organic processes uh, that are dynamic and, and moving. Um, illustration. So, when a child is born, that's an event, right? Got a birthday. Uh, but... Uh, that child's got the whole rest of their life to live. It's, it's the implications of that event are, are happening. And uh, everything that they're born with, their DNA, who their parents are, their geography, uh, in some cases, the quality of the medical care that the child received, the time of delivery, if something was botched, that, that's all an event, but its effects are ongoing. The fall. So I think divorce is a good illustration for a fall. Divorce, you sign the legal papers, it's done, you're separated, husband and wife move out, it's done. But for the rest of their life, that event has ongoing consequences. Every Christmas gathering, every birthday of a child, right? Every time they go to the bank account and see only their name listed on it instead of a joint account. Every time they file their taxes, you're never filing jointly, you're filing separately. You know, it's, it's, it has ongoing effects, right? And uh, redemption, what's, what's a, I got an idea in mind, but uh, what's, what's a, a redemptive event that has ongoing effects just for illustrative purposes? Anybody think of one? That's a great one, yeah. Someone's out of prison. There's a clear history to, before this moment. There, there, was, there was a fall of sorts, right? They're in prison, but they're out now. Never going back. 
unless they commit another crime in this fallen world. But supposing, uh, um, yeah, you're out. You're not, you're not going back. It's a whole new life. Um, uh, and it, it's so new. It's so startling. Some people don't know how to cope with it. Uh, anyone seen Shawshank Redemption? Uh, Morgan Freeman's character gets out of prison and he doesn't know what to do with himself. He just he wasn't used to, he wasn't used to that life. Uh, it's that new, it's that real, it's that ongoing. It wasn't just an event of being released from prison, but it's, it's going forward. A- adoption, I think, is another, another good one. You know, there's, there's a life before the... The child has a life before they're t- adopted. Um, they're an orphan, or, or they've been abandoned, or they've been given up by the parent, but then there's, they're adopted, and the, the ongoing implications of that are, are ongoing. So, all that to say... As we talk about these categories, they're not just static events. They are they're ongoing processes that, that are still at work. Um, okay. So today, why don't we start? Let's just uh, open your Bibles, and let's turn to Genesis. Let's start from the beginning. And we're going to focus, as we read, primarily on uh, what does it mean that man is made in the image of God? And so as you read this, pay attention to the details about how uh, Adam, the human, is created, uh, how Eve is created, and uh, we're going to start in Genesis one twenty four, which talks about the creation of the animals, uh, and think, think about what's different about how they're created versus, versus how we're created. So um, let's... Let me have two volunteers, someone to read Genesis 1 section and someone to take over at Genesis 2. Dean, you want to read Genesis 1, 24 through the end of 1. Who wants to read Genesis 2? Adam. All right, go for it, Dean. Very 
the whole chapter. Very good. Okay, so to start with, um, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, it's the same story. Uh, Genesis 2 elaborates and focuses on man, uh, the creation of man in a, in, a, in a deeper and more detailed way. Genesis 1 uh, has the whole creation in one, in one capstone. So to start out with Genesis chapter 1, uh, why is man created last? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
Yes. Right. Right. There's a progression. Right. There's a culmination in man. Yeah. Donald. Yeah. Yes, totally agree. Everything, great. You got, I couldn't say it better. Um, just to, I think, um, many of the influences from me in this class are coming from Dutch theologians. So uh, Herman Bavink being, being one of them. Herman Bavink says it this way, humanity, where the spiritual and material world are joined together, is the crowning culmination of creation. Humanity where the spiritual and material world are joined together is the crowning culmination of creation. Right, and so there, there's, there's, a, there's a coronation of sorts, a, a culmination of, of God's creation, and its focal point is in, in man. So, very good. So, Bobbing makes the assertion, the coming together of the spiritual and material. Where is he getting that idea? Any, any thoughts before we dive in? I'll direct you to it, but... What does that mean? Where, where is he getting that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. You went to the you went to the verse. Went to the proof text. There you go. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Th- these these truths are um, articulated in in this passage, but but they're they're self this loaded term. Probably the word you know, self evident. I mean, that's I don't like that philosophical method, but but they're self evident. I mean, this is undeniable. You ha- you have to willfully suppress the spiritual nature of humanity to 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 deny that it's that it's there. I mean. And, and I think that is the big project of, of modernity, is to separate spirit from matter in the human being. It's to, it's to put my spiritual essence on some platform that never touches my physical platform, and, uh, and there the two meet. And so, you know, we talk today about our emotional state. People even talk about, you know, they talk about spirituality, but it's not in a it's in a pantheistic sense. It's like getting in tune with other parts of the immaterial nature of nature. Um, although, Donald, you, you would probably say that um, there's even an element of traditional pantheism that is capturing the divine uniqueness of humanity beyond what modernity does. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's true. Um, 
But, um, and so I, I, you know, the, the worst culmination of all this is to say that your emotional state, your spiritual state is nothing more than chemical reactions in your brain. I mean, that, that, is, that is the, I think, um, most extreme uh, nullification of, of the human spirituality uh, in our day. And it sounds so enlightened, doesn't it? You know, it sounds so, you know, in touch with, with the times. And, um, but it's, it's an abomination to, to call the spiritual side of you um, nothing more than an experience of chemical reactions is, is, is anathema. So, so going to the, the text here, let's, let's see how the scriptures articulate this. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground. Let's stop there. Formed the man of the dust of the ground. So what's, what's being communicated with this is, is our bodies are the stuff of the material universe. Right? You are part of this world. And, and you, you, you are not, this, this body is real. This body has a real connection to the earth. And it's not... Um, we are part of this world. In every sense of the word, we are part of this world. Now, uh, pause. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 24. And uh, tell me how they were created. How are animals created? First uh, ten verses of ten words of Genesis chapter twenty-four or verse twenty-four says, "And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds.' Now, I don't know what this means scientifically. Um, C.S. Lewis, I think, has the best uh, illustration of what this looks like in Magician's Nephew. Uh, anyone know how the animals are created in Chronicles of Narnia? The magician's Nephew." Allegra, do you know? Uh, I think you know. Where do the animals come from? He sang them into being right. Exactly. There's a song, but, that, but how do they actually manifest themselves? How do they appear? They come out of the ground. There, there are these just these mounds of of earth kind of come up, and all of a sudden this animal breaks forth. But but the idea is the animals, the, the imagery is is the animals are coming from the ground, and so at that point. Uh, when God says, let's make man out of the dust, humans are also coming out of the ground, so to speak, right? Okay? But what's different? What's, so, so, so with animals, they, they come out, they, the earth produces them, and they're alive immediately. Okay? There, there's nothing else really that needs to happen for them to be living beings. Okay? But what's different about man? And Dean, Dean you said it, yeah. God breathed into them. Right, and, and the breath here, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a relationship between the ruach, you know, that's hovering over the, over the, uh, the void, uh, unformed world. Um, th- this, is, this is God, there's a, a spiritual, man's life is spiritual. Man's life is spiritual. That our, our life, unlike the animal life, is not just a function of, being sustained materially through oxygen and minerals, um, 
our life, although it's connected to that material sustenance, is fundamentally spiritual life. And so, yes, the soul. Yeah, um, but it's a quality in the soul. Because animals, they, they have a soul of sorts. They, they, I talked about this last time. You know the difference between a live animal and a dead animal. And even I mean, animals are so incredible. We don't give them credit. Uh, I mean, dogs. I mean, every dog has a different personality. I mean, even dogs. You know, dolphins, um, cats. Uh, I mean, we had cats growing up, and they were all different. You know, uh, every morning one of my cats would come up and nuzzle me in the morning. Uh, it was great, but none of the other cats did that. Just, just, just that one cat. You know, um, other cats. You know, they go. They do other weird things, you know. Uh, but uh, if you've had animals, you just, and that's what, that's what, that's why animals are a higher being than plants. Or, um, and, and even plants have, personality is not the right word, but they have different characteristics. I was going to start asking this question, so what's the hierarchy here? Because plants have life, and at some point you're going to start saying bacteria have life. So at what point are we saying life means soul? Yeah, but by soul, by soul, I just mean there's some animating, there's something animating the objects. There's it, it's more than just it's not a machine, it's not just mechanical process. There's there's a there's a dynamism to the existence that is more than just um, just material processes moving. Yeah, Donald. Yeah, that, that's, 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 a good, that's a good thought. Augustine, this gets into more image of God, so we're kind of, maybe we can transition to that, but Augustine talks about the image of God, at least one aspect of it being, um, we exist, we're conscious of our existence, and it's, we, we, we believe it's good that we exist. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something, it's something in that sense. Now, the image of God is much more than just self-consciousness, but, but it's no less than that. It's no less than that. Animals are not self-conscious in the same way that we're self-conscious. And, uh, and also, well, boy, we're running out of time. Um, let's just, okay, so humans are spiritual. Um, now, and the spiritual uh, life that we have comes from God, and it is in some mysterious way God's spiritual life. What does that mean? I don't know what that means fully. Um, I know that the, what the Bible communicates to us is image of God. Image of God. Now, image, image uh, many of you have heard, uh, I've often heard in the context of Hebrews chapter 1 sermons where it talks about Christ as the image of God and this idea of, of, a, of a seal. You've got a signet ring on the king, and you've got wax and then you impress upon the wax an image of the seal itself. The image is distinct from the seal, but it bears all of its unique characteristics. That's one thing. You also mirror 
reflection, right? I am the actual being that exists, but if you look at a mirror, you see my exact impression, and the mirror is my image. Uh, so there's, there's the, the metaphor of, of image that I think uh, captures it, but I think I, the more I've thought about that, the more I've, um, uh, and again, I, th- I think the best thing I could do is probably just read Bavink on this because I'm, I'm getting at the cap- limits of my capacity as a, as a theologian. Um, let me just read this quote here. Um, this is from Bavink's uh, Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 2, uh, his chapter on human nature. The whole human being is image and likeness of God in soul and body, in all human faculties, powers, and gifts. Nothing in humanity is excluded from God's image. It stretches as far as our humanity does and constitutes our humanness. The human is not the divine self. Right? The human is not the same thing as the signet ring. The human is not the same thing as the person looking in the mirror. The human is not the divine self, but is nevertheless a finite creaturely impression of the divine. All that is in God finds its admittedly finite and limited analogy and likeness in humanity. That's beautiful. That's just, and, and I think the reaction you should have is, wow, humans, that's humans. That is, I mean, that is so much a better story than a bunch of chemicals flying around. That, right? that, that is such a better story than just this self-determined object who's going to conquer the world all by himself and shake his fist at God and shake his fist in the storm and transcend reality, you know, as noble as that sounds in a great B-rate movie released in 2010 or something, you know. Like, we are God's image. Like, when God wanted to... Here's how I think about it. If God wanted to communicate himself materially, which which he... he made humans to do that. You want to know you, you as God's image, want to know who God is like, you can't really do better than understanding who humans were meant to be. Yes? You know, if you take that further, though, and say that Jesus Christ, yes, yes, yes. And that's, right. Exactly. And, be, and I want to springboard on that to kind of anticipate our next topic, which is um, the idea of potential. Sorry, sorry Donald, yes. And, and that's why you would worship the greatest human in your midst, in one sense. You know, the deification of kings, it's not an irrational sentiment if, if you have this notion of 
just the awe and wonder that's impressed upon the human being, then when you see the greatest human being in your midst who's conquering or, or shows great wisdom or, great, great, uh, or is, is very attractive or strong, the, hum, the human impulse is to worship that. And, and in, the most, in the most basic of sense of just, of just applauding it, him or him, applauding him or, you know, I mean, worship in its most primitive sense is just, you see something happen, happening, you stand up and you start clapping. So you, you see the king in your great kingdom who's won a great victory for you and is arrayed in royal robes and splendor and looks very handsome and just, I, I, I want to clap at that. Because that's glorious. Now, Dave, you said Christ, this is ultimately Christ. And this is a good segue to, to next week. When Adam was created, again, creation is, is a, it's an event, but it's ongoing. It was, it was a process that was started and made to, to continue. When Adam was created, he was the, created with all the hardware and all the potential to be the king of creation, and he was the king of creation, but he, he, had, to, he had to earn it in a sense. Don't, not being technical with that. That's not, not talking about covenant of works precisely here. Um, but but there, there was something, there was a manifestation of the kingly state of man that had yet to run its full course. It was cut short. And the gospel, like fundamentally the good news of the coming kingdom is the man, the crown of creation, the second Adam, is here. And he is the king that we've all been waiting for. He is the glory of God impressed upon a material human being. And so when we see Christ, we see all that Adam ought to have been eventually, but who Christ is in reality is the crown of all creation. And, and, and you want to know the glory of God in hum, in, in, in the mater, manifested in the material realm, that is the God-man. That is God become flesh, and, and so he's the one worthy of worship. He's the one who stands up with all the glory, and we just, we just have to stand up and clap, and we have to worship him. It's, at that point, it, it should be automatic, and that is, in fact, what is prophesied at the end of, end of creation, that when Christ appears, every knee will bow because they have to bow. Like, when, when you see, I mean, we see this in sports, a terribly humble analogy, but... When you see someone do something just incredible in sports, I remember Game 7, LeBron James, uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, Golden State Warriors. Uh, it's, it's two minutes to go, and uh, I think Clay Thompson's running down the court for Golden State. He's going to make a layup. They're going to go up three points, and LeBron James just chases him down and has this epic block where he smashes the basketball against the, the, the backboard. I don't know if you guys recall this scene. But it's just, I mean, you just, wow. Like, on that stage, at that point in the game, that, I mean, he, he, he chased him down from, like, the back of the court. I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, what Christ did on the cross and in his resurrection and in his ascension 
is that on the grandest of scales. That's, that's the gospel, is that the man who should have appeared at the conclusion of Genesis 2 and carried humanity and all of creation with him in dominion is finally here. And, and when, we get, when we worship God, that's, that's fundamentally what we're worshiping Christ for. This is the Lord's day. This is the day he is reigning right now. He has a glorified body. And as a human, it's a glorified human, Jesus is governing all creation. Uh, we don't see him. His body is so glorified that it has properties we don't fully understand. We don't know how he uh, mechanically does what he's doing, but he is reigning and he's ruling and he's the king. And we as his people, we worship him and we call him our king. And we act at his behest and we are anticipating in our worship, in our lives as his people, the rest of eternity under his rule and reign. When, in other words, our bodies will catch up to the spiritual realities in our hearts. And and that's that's why the resurrection is our great hope. Because in our hearts, by faith, as we heard preached yesterday by by Nathan Lee, by faith we apprehend Christ's glory. Right? But our bodies have yet to catch up. Our material eyes have not beheld the glorified Christ, but our hearts have. And so, uh, image of God, (laughs) We we see the... we see it articulated in, in Genesis, um, and we're going to talk next week about the potential, uh, the element of potential with all this, kind of fruitful and multiply. There was an expansion that had yet to come about. There's potential baked into all this. But fast forwarding to the conclusion of the class, uh, uh, ultimately this is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's his glory that we behold. Uh, but his glory, I want you to see that Christ's glory is the glory of humanity. Like the, the glory that mankind was to be as the image of God is Jesus. The glory that we behold in Jesus is not just his divine glory. It's the glory of a resurrected man. And, and I think we don't, the humanity of Christ, the glorified humanity of Christ, I think we, we don't appreciate because we don't have the groundwork of how glorious humans were meant to be from the beginning. And, and when we start to appreciate that, and that God's divine being was somehow implanted into, or impressed upon and, and mirrored in man, and then it fell short, that's what creates this anticipation. That's what creates that feeling when I, we don't hit the last note of a scale. Where is that glory? I want to see it. I don't feel it. I feel like I'm dying. I'm in pain. I'm in sorrow. Where is this glory? It's in Jesus. It's come back. We see it in him. Okay, we're out of time. Let's, uh, let's pray and go into worship. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the firstborn of the new creation, that um, creation as it will yet become when he appears has already started in him, that his body is indestructible, that his spirit uh, is more powerful uh, than any force in this universe and that he has conquered our hearts, and that he is yet conquering others uh, to uh, make them obey him, to make them worship him, and to make them love him. 
We pray that we would bring you the honor that is due your name, the name that is above every name. And we anticipate the day that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So go with us in this hour of worship, and may you be pleased with our feeble attempts to worship you. And But we rejoice that you do accept us because of Jesus. And so we come as your children, rejoicing in his name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mark, what's going on? Oh, yeah, you're good. Another fluffy? Good. <laughs> 